Hello and welcome to All Things Urticaria from Medthority. In this series of podcasts, our host, Professor Marcus Maurer, is joined by his friends and colleagues to discuss all things urticaria. Over to Professor Maurer. Hello and welcome back to All Things Urticaria. My name is Marcus, Marcus Maurer. I'm here in Berlin and I'm very happy to be talking today with Clive Gratton. Clive, hello. Hi, Marcus. Clive, I'm so happy to have you on. This is fantastic. Uh, you have, over many years, contributed so many important insights to our current understanding of chronic urticaria. And you've seen, I don't know, how many, how, how many patients with urticaria do you think you've seen? Now, that's a question I've never thought about, but uh, a great number. My first uh, real interest in urticaria started in the early 80s. And yeah. it's gone on and it's enduring. Yes, early 80s. I remember reading uh, those big papers. You know, they changed the way we saw it. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about the time, the golden era of uh, pathogenesis research in chronic spontaneous urticaria, really? The, uh, the problem was that nobody knew why urticaria happened. And uh, I was uh, under the sort of tutelage of a really great clinician called Dr. Bob Waring, whose name is probably no longer remembered, when I went to a uh, job in Bristol in the UK. And uh, Bob reckoned that there was something in blood that was causing urticaria, um, not histamine, uh, but uh, he didn't know what it was. And he gave me a project. He said, Clive, um, I think it's in the bottle, and he mm -hmm. had the blood find the cause of urticaria. And that was the beginning of this interest, which, in fact, started with the autologous serum skin test to really demonstrate that, yes, there was something in the blood uh, that, uh, when re-injected into the patient's own skin, produced a wheel and flare response in at least 50% of patients with what was then called chronic idiopathic urticaria. Right. But we have we have renamed it chronic spontaneous yeah. because we that's a clinical term. It's not a, a an etiological term. It's a clinical term. Yeah, but it must have been it must have been so fascinating for you also when you started to re-inject patients with their own serum to see that happen. Whereas you know you probably did it to yourself as well with your own serum and didn't get a response. Um, so, um, uh, but many others com contributed to this. You you really had a great team around you. Um, uh, and then there was a, a, another team on the other side of the ocean working in parallel with you. Those were exciting times of urticariology. Exactly. Well, uh, the initial observation of the positive autologous serum skin test showed that there was uh, something which needed further work on it. And uh, then I moved to London and I worked with Professor Malcolm Greaves. And he had a lab set up and uh, by good chance, a wonderful technician called David Francis, who was looking at the basophil histamine release assay. Um, in fact, he was looking for cytokines and uh, I bought uh, sera and we ran those and uh, they were strongly positive on the assay. And that was the beginning of the understanding that uh, it could be an autoantibody. But further work developed and Malcolm was involved with that. Michi was involved with it. Right. And of course, as you say, the other side, the Atlantic, had Alan uh, Kaplan. He was uh, also working um, really um, in sort of in parallel 
Uh, we never worked directly together, but everything he did was of interest because it validated what was being done in the UK. Yeah. So, it, so it was mutual. Yeah, and of course, it, 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 it complemented each other so nicely. You know, I, I listened to a lecture from Malcolm back in the days and then read a paper from Alan on the complement contribution to the autoantibodies that Malcolm was describing that you had discovered in the in the autologous serum skin test essays. Uh, just just marvelous. Hey, is chronic spontaneous urticaria still your favorite urticaria these days? It is, of course. Uh, I, I would say that uh, it, it's got so many sort of uh, rewards in terms of being able to help our patients, but also so many unanswered questions. We need to understand more about what is going on. Yeah. And I think we all understand that functional autoantibodies are a uh, an important part of a chain of events but uh, the uh, chain doesn't begin and end in the blood it um, has involvement of the skin and we have to ask the question why does a wheel start and why does a wheel resolve yeah. and i think uh, you would say that uh, it's still unknown unknown well <laughs> That, that makes it sound like we really don't know, um, but I think we do know a lot. I think it's um, the, the time of having many of the puzzle pieces, not all of them, and not being quite at the right, in the right situation to put them all together to make that picture become real, you know? And, and really, I think part of the problem is that we still don't have uh, a good test. Well, we have the basophil activation test, which which I like a lot, but, as far as immunoassays for these autoantibody goes, you know, you still can't buy that in the pharmacy or order it in your regular routine lab. Why is that, Clive? I think that um, uh, it it's a difficult, the immunoassay is difficult to interpret because yeah. um, essentially we're looking for functionality yeah. with the autologous serum skin test, with the basal activation test, with the basal histamine release assay. But I'm going to come back to that because I think you understood what I said slightly differently to how I was intending. Um, I said it's unknown. Why does a wheel come up in one place at oh. one time? Yeah. So why does it come up, say, at night? Why does it come up on an arm or a leg? Why doesn't it cover the whole body all the time yeah. if we've got antibodies which are capable of releasing histamine? And then when it comes up, why does it resolve? Yeah. And so there's a chain of events, which I think still needs a lot of work to understand. Uh, on that, I agree with you 100%. And I think we do not have a good idea of why it come, the wheel comes here and not, and not there. You know, I I actually think... This may be chance, and this is just where um, the blood opened, the blood vessels opened up, and uh, a signal came to the mast cell just at that spot, just at that time that made the wheel come. But hey, that's speculation. I also think I wonder what you think about this. Is that a site that had developed a wheel, a piece of skin where a wheel occurred, is more likely to develop more wheels going forward? So it may be that in the beginning it is chance, and then um, the the changes that come with wheeling make further wheeling more likely. What do you think? That may be so. I also think, though, that uh, tachyphylaxis can happen mm. um, in the, exactly the same site as demonstrated by the autologous serum skin test, because the wheel response will reduce 
if you inject the same area every day for four days you can uh, reduce that wheeling response but um, but you're talking about something slightly different a susceptibility of uh, part of the body to develop wheels and some people do say i get them really on my trunk um, I get them mainly on my legs, yeah. and uh, and I suspect that uh, this is where the external influences in life are important. So pressure, heat, maybe, and uh, uh, who knows what other sort of external sort of influences, and and also the um, the neural system. Uh, how does that uh, impinge on on Marcel um, releasability? I think, Clive, that's one of the most interesting things uh, in urticaria to explore, that muscle-nerve interaction that really is uh, bidirectional. You know, the, the muscle degranulation tickles the nerves, and that, of course, the, makes makes the wheel itchy. Um, but there is also a signal that comes back from the nerves that I think primes mast cells, makes them more susceptible to get activated. And I think we really need to figure this out because it could be an interesting new um, approach to treat chronic spontaneous urticaria. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I think this um, resonates with what people say to us is that at periods of stress, that they may find the urticaria is more active. It doesn't mean the stress causes urticaria, but it's one of these perhaps influences on the cutaneous mast cell, uh, in addition to the other ones like heat and pressure and possible dietary elements, uh, which we know have been explored a lot. So it, it's probably multifactorial in, in a sense. Yeah. But the fact is that uh, autoantibodies are important as well. And they could be the prime driver that leads to the of the change in the mast cell rather than the nerve. It may be that uh, uh, this is the one that sort of sets the scene for all the other events that happen and lead to the, the clinical manifestation, which we call urticaria. Yeah, but perfect segue to another question I wanted to ask you, the whole stress business. You know, this can be, is, no, no question about it, this is very stressful for patients to have, but it can also be stressful to be uh, a urticaria treating physician. Well, I mean, you've, we, we have, you've seen, I don't know, you, you haven't counted, but uh, I'm going to suspect it is thousands and thousands of urticaria patients. Um, and we do feel the frustration that they bring with them uh, when they see us, the anger, um, maybe also the sadness uh, about the state that they are in with their disease. How do you how do you deal with it? Do you take that home? Can you close the door when, after a urticaria clinic, uh, uh, or are there stories uh, that you hear that make you think on your way home or tell your family about? I, but how do you do? Oh, it's a great question, a great clinical question, because um, we see patients with different stories, and I think that's why it's such a great subject to be involved with. The illness may be the same, it actually may be a, a very polymorphic illness with sort of different presentations, but the stories are often very different and how it affects people, uh, that matters a lot. And I find that spending time is what uh, is probably the most beneficial aspect of a consultation to understand what may be the cause, um, the mechanism, what may be the treatment, but also discussing the issues around quality of life. And it takes time. I agree, it takes time and it's fun to take that time because exploring together with the patient that story and what is important is 
part of the treatment, really. I mean, we can prescribe drugs and we can tell patients to do the urticaria control test, but um, for patients to have a concept of their disease and to work with us is super important. And my guess is um, this does make urticaria patient different than patients with other diseases. I mean, you are prolific dermatologist. You see patients with many, many different skin diseases. What is that? What is that one thing more than others that makes urticaria patient different? Curiously, I think the uh, impact and quality of life is consistently higher with severe chronic urticaria than it is with many of the other dermatological problems we deal with. And I say that because uh, the the threshold for funding of, uh, say, um, biologics for sclerosis in the UK would be a dermatology life quality index of 10. But when I ask patients with urticaria, chronic urticaria, to fill in this, it's nearly always a lot higher than that. Some people tick 30. They just tick every box saying it's as bad as it can get. And I think it does illustrate, possibly through lack of sleep, but the disfigurement, uh, the inability to have uh, comfortable relationships with other people, uh, the itch, it, it, it all adds up in, in a way which is not so obvious to an outsider. And so many times you hear this that they say, well, my, my doctor just said, oh, it's, it's, it's just a high. Don't worry about it. It's just a high. So we're, we're underestimating the disease and the impact on patients. In, in, I think we, we do, particularly with um, chronic disease, which is severe. But of course, it does also uh, tell us that there is a spectrum of illness from quite mild, just a few hives occasionally. And that does happen in the community. And some people reach me with that story. Or it's part of a, a longitudinal uh, story of illness. But some people are so badly affected that it is um, one of the, the worst experiences that they've ever been through. Yeah, clearly. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, it, it ties on over if you're underestimating and others are also not seeing the true picture um, that urticaria brings to patients. That makes it very difficult to do good research. No, I mean, um, you've been you've been trying to get funding for your programs uh, for many many years and uh, have been very successful. But wouldn't it be nice if it were recognized as the devastating disease that it is, and if more money um, came to urticaria research programs? I, I'm sure you're right, Marcus. Uh, I think the problem is we have an interest and uh, uh, we, um, we want to promote our interest on behalf of uh, science and our patients. But of course, every other illness will have its uh, impact on, on individuals. And everybody's uh, shouting uh, that uh, I'm the most important specialty and uh, don't, don't ignore me. And I think to have this, uh, this judgment that urticaria is in fact uh, a complex, still quite poorly understood illness that does need input in terms of management and understanding is um, quite hard to set against important illnesses like COVID or cancer, which uh, clearly uh, gain the headlines. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and it's not easy for urticaria to be recognized in terms of its impact. Now, I, I often feel that one of the mean things about this is that it comes and goes and it likes to not be there when patients are in my office. And I, I feel that, you know, that patients hold that 
uh, like many other things against their disease. Now, why don't I have these wheels right now when I'm able to show it uh, to to the physician? I, I think that's uh, it, it's very frustrating for patients often. Having said that, I think it's also very important to recognize that there are now much better treatments and better understanding and that the illness does get better in, I think, everybody. And uh, I feel comfortable with saying that. It may take a long time and uh, it may, in fact, uh, be an illness that has fluctuations. And I think this is something, again, which may not be well understood, that it can be well controlled and then become very badly controlled, requiring sort of input uh, to try and draw that uh, back under control and then um, might appear to disappear and then re-emerge. And, and again, I think uh, we do need to understand why some people seem susceptible to this intermittent pattern of activity. Agree. That's among the many questions that we still need to figure out. But I do think, just like you, that that positive message, it will go away, uh, is important for patients to hear from us. And that brings me to a question, Clive, that I don't know if you remember that. You asked me many years ago um, if everything is true, what we think about the pathogenesis of chronic urticaria, chronic spontaneous urticaria with autoimmunity and maybe others uh, contributing to this, then why does it go away? You know, is it because we uh, um, develop tolerance uh, as patients who lose the disease or is it because uh, we stop making these autoantibodies. What's what's your what's your um, take on that? Uh, yeah, of course, it's such a great question. I I said, you know, why does a wheel go away? And that's one thing. That's a local question, a local skin question. But why does the disease go away? Well, it's a there are sort of, uh, parts of the um, the chain of events which are reset at a lower level. And we like to think it's the mast cell, which is the key cell within this uh, chain of events. And the mast cell sort of quartens down and becomes less releasable. But uh, why, I, I can't say. It would be great if the autoimmune story was so strong that if you could get rid of the antibodies, that the urticaria disappeared. And yeah. that was it. But it's not always that clear because you know and I know some patients can have a high positive basophil assay as evidence of functional antibodies, but not be so symptomatic and yeah. they may respond just to antihistamines, whereas other people um, have negative tests for autoimmunity and uh, they still have very severe disease. So I'm, I think it's, it's a key question. We, we don't, I don't know the answer. Look, Clive, I'm looking at the time here and it flies uh, talking to you. So thank you so much for for taking the, the, the time. Uh, Clive, we come almost full circle here um, and uh, touched on many, many open questions. My last question to you is, if you had a guarantee that you could answer, let's say with a year's worth of research, one question in chronic spontaneous urticaria, what question would that be? And what would you hope the answer would be? Now you've really put me on the spot. <laughs> Give me no time to think of it. Uh, I think I'm going to actually widen it right out to mast cell activation because, you know, chronic urticaria, acute urticaria, episodic urticaria, these are episodes of mast cell activation. Anaphylaxis is mast cell activation. And then we've got this concept of mast cell activation syndrome, which is really significant. It's in the, um, I think it's in the arena for discussion. 
And I think it's if one could um, so take away mast cell activation um, and uh, and do it without harming the the rest of the innate immune system and the physiology, the beneficial effects of mast cells. That would be wonderful. And I'm just thinking that there is, I think, an antibody or um, a, uh, um, a a new molecule which binds KIT and mm -hmm. inhibits KIT. Am I right? Yeah. I think that has a lot of promise. I think if it uh, one could inhibit mast cells generally, then it would be um, um, applicable to a wider range of illness than what we talked about, chronic spontaneous urticaria. In fact, all illness. And then we'd understand how many illnesses truly are mast cell related. And we might be surprised. Cloud, great. Always love to talk to you. Wish we could do it much longer. Maybe we'll do it again. Thank you for taking the time. This was fantastic. Um, let's say goodbye to Clive in London. Thank you, Clive. Okay, thanks, Marcus. And that brings us to the close of yet another episode of All Things Urticaria, your UCARE podcast. You want to learn more about UCARE, the Urticaria Centers of Reference and Excellence? Go join us. And check us out online. And if you do have something that you would want us to talk about in all things urticaria, do reach out to us. We'll be happy to hear from you. Until then, stay safe, be well. Bye bye. Medthority would like to thank Marcus Maurer for that fascinating insight into UCARE. If you have any other questions regarding urticaria, please feel free to ask us via our website www.medthority.com Remember to tune in for the next episode of All Things Urticaria. From all of us at All Things Urticaria from Medthority, have a lovely week.